I've wondered about that, and of course we've prayed for healing, but you know, it's like God to take the weak things of the world to shame the wise, isn't it? It's like God to raise up a man like Dave Furman to lead us in this church as senior pastor and for his life to be a demonstration of what it means to follow Christ in very, very many ways. And so um, as Dave leaves us this week, do keep him in your prayers and also be reminded of the ways that, that our God has worked in the, in the world and that it is not by accident that Dave is with us and leading us in the midst of pain and his infirmity. Have you seen Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? Have you seen that, that play? It's very appropriate this morning. Obviously, it's based on the text that uh, Brian read, um, at, uh, presented, really. It's a, it's a Broadway play, musical. It's turned into a movie. Over 20,000 high school productions of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. 20,000. So it's no wonder that one reviewer wrote... Its family-friendly storyline, universal themes, and catchy music have made Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat one of the most dependable, profitable titles in music theater, particularly when producers cast a headlining star. In many ways, I think the success of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat points to the wonder of the stories of Scripture. It was Dorothy Sayre who said, the famous, famous author and amazing storyteller, uh, said that the greatest story ever told was the Bible. And it's true. For all the plays, all the books, all the movies, all, all the stories presented, the Bible is hard to top. And it seems like it's made Andrew Lloyd Webber very, very rich. Now, we've been doing studies in the Old Testament where we talk about how we see Christ or Jesus in the Old Testament. And if you're new here with us this, this morning at Redeemer, it may sound a bit odd. I mean, isn't the Old Testament about the law and the New Testament about love? Well, no, not, not really. We've come to understand as we look at these Christ images in the Old Testament, that when we read the Old Testament, we are actually reading the autobiography of Jesus. In fact, we've been looking at the four generations of this one family, starting with Abraham. We continued with Isaac, on to Jacob, and now with Jacob's son, Joseph. In Genesis 22, you can just think of it this way. In Genesis 22, we looked at Abraham and his call to sacrifice Isaac. And we saw that we're not Abraham, we are Isaac. We're on the altar. The wrath of God is raised over us. We are bound in sin. And our only hope, our only place that we could look to for for hope is in the substitution. The Lamb of God provided to take Isaac's place. Last week we looked at Genesis 32. So first, Genesis 22. Second, Genesis 32, we we looked at Jacob wrestling with God, this personal God who comes and confronts us about our sin and the need for reconciliation with God. This week, we're looking at Genesis 42, a number of other chapters, but Genesis 42, just so you can have it in your head. Genesis 22, Genesis 32, Genesis 42, where we're looking at the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph is an amazing story. It covers about 13 chapters of the 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. He's, he's written about more in that book than any other character. So simply by size, we see that the story is important. 
And it's important to understand the story. Joseph's, Joseph's family defined dysfunctional. <laughs> it's astounding as you read this story. I don't know where people get in the, their minds that the Old Testament characters uh, and, and patriarchs and those that started uh, faith were somehow holy. <laughs> uh, I mean, his father Jacob was the deceiver of his own brother. Joseph was one of the youngest sons of Jacob. He grew up with violent and dangerous men. His brothers, when he was 14, actually snuck into a city and murdered every male inhabitant of the city for the rape of their sister, Dinah. So one man raped his sister, but the entire village was murdered. Against all odds, Joseph grew up to be a good man, a righteous man, a God-fearing man. Not that, not that that helped, of course, with his brothers. They were jealous. They hated him. They hated his dreams. And as Brian read, they sought to kill him. And ended up selling him as a slave, beginning Joseph's long life in Egypt. Now, Joseph's time in Egypt start, started pretty well. He was a favored and successful slave until the lusty wife of the captain of the guard was angered that Joseph wouldn't sleep with her. So she trumped up some charges with racist overtones and had him thrown in jail where he languished for years. Even there, the Lord was with him. And he prospered his help with the jailer. His big break, of course, came when he correctly interpreted some visions for some fellow jailmates. They happened to be very influential. One was the cupbearer to the king and one was the king's baker. When the king, called Pharaoh, had some disturbing dreams that no one could interpret, it was reported back to the king of this rare ability that Joseph had to interpret dreams. And so he was called in and asked to interpret the king's dreams. And he did it with such clarity that Joseph was made lord over Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. He took a wife. He had children. He seemed content to live out his days as an expat in the Middle East. (laughs) Now this is where the story gets very interesting. It's then as the Lord of the greatest power on earth sees his brothers come beg for food. His brothers who had sold him into slavery and left him for dead show up in Egypt. They have no idea that their brother is now in charge. They don't recognize him. They don't recognize that he speaks Hebrew. But he recognizes them. He knows them. He knows them better than they know themselves. Think of it. They beg for life from their brother whom they tried to murder. Joseph tells them he suspects they're spies. And this is not, this is not a spurious accusation now. <laughs> Joseph, as a young man, watched his brothers spy out a city to murder them all. But they deny it. They claim, we're honest men. Now, Joseph has them prove this claim of honesty by telling them that he'll test their story. Bring the other brother to me, uh, Benjamin, and I'll believe you, he says. I'll keep one of you guys in jail until you get back. (laughs) Distressed, they go home, they tell Jacob. 
their aged father what's happened. Jacob reluctantly agrees. Eventually, after the food runs out, they come back to Egypt. And on their arrival, Jacob prepares a meal and eats with them. They're astounded. But they depart with lavish sacks of grain and food. Unbeknownst to them, Benjamin's sack has a silver cup in it. On their way, they're arrested for the theft of this cup by the guard, and they return to face judgment by Joseph. Benjamin is going to be held captive. The rest could leave, says Joseph. But then Judah, as Brian read, who is the ancestor of Jesus, the line of Christ, stands before Joseph and gives his life for his brother. He offers his life as a ransom for Benjamin. Joseph can't take it anymore. He breaks down, weeping, reveals himself to the brothers. The prophecies are true. He's their king. But he is also their redeemer. Though they meant him harm, God used it for their good. And there is rich reward for Jacob and his sons. When Jacob's told of the message that Joseph is alive, he says, my son who was dead has come back to life. Astounding story. No wonder Andrew Lloyd Webber did so well. He had great material to work with, right? (laughs) Now, we've been going through these passages of the Old Testament, and I've been saying now, here's the story, and here's how it's normally preached, right? And then, then we talk about what's going on in the text. Here's how this passage, or this story of Joseph is normally preached. This is what what you normally would hear about this passage. Be good, and God will reward you. Right? That's right. Nothing wrong with that. Avoid sexual sin. That's point two. Usually they start with the same letter. Okay. Be good, and God will reward you. Number two, avoid sexual sin. You know, keen off this this, uh, incident that wound up, where Joseph wound up in jail with Potiphar's wife. Thirdly, And usually there are three parts to a sermon. Thirdly, (laughs) forgive those who have hurt you. That's good, right? We're for that. Nobody's against that. Do I want that for you? You bet I do. I I want you to understand delayed gratification. To be good now for future glory. Absolutely, no question. Do I want you to avoid sexual sin? Absolutely, sexual sin hurts you. I I long for a a community of of pure sexual creatures. Do I want you to forgive one another? Forgive yourself? (laughs) Sure. Forgiveness is a key, actually, to spiritual health in our lives. A key to spiritually healthy relationships with one another. I'm, I'm for all that. Is it the point of the passage? Is it the point of the story? Not so much. Not, not really. I mean, it's all true. Those are themes here. But it's not the point of the passage. Those themes exist, and many, many more, by the way. But if we only settle for those, you see, we, we miss the big story. We, we miss the big picture. The big picture is that thousands of years before Jesus, this is a story of Christ. It's the story of Christ right here in the first book of the Bible. Listen to the hints of the gospel here. Joseph, who was wrongfully given over to death by sinful people that he loved. 
It's, it's a story or theme about how God takes our evil and uses it for good. It's about sinners finding mercy. It's about true repentance and what it looks like. It's about giving our lives to the forgiving king. These are the central themes often missed by people when they look at the life of Joseph. And you know, I think it's helpful for us to ask the question, why is it we miss the big picture when, we're, when we read the stories of the Old Testament? Why is it that we don't see what this is really pointing to? And I I think the big problem is that we tend to think of ourselves as center stage. We tend to think of ourselves as the lead actor in the play. Right? We put our names front and center. So it's Mac and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? Or Shabnita or Shahab or Matthew. You know, put your name in there. And the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? We see ourselves as the main character in life's play. Now, of course, Jesus and God have important supporting roles, right? But But it's our play. The Holy Spirit is there for us to plug into when we need power to accomplish our goals. And the Bible is sort of a self help book that becomes a director's manual for success, right? Now, I, I, know, I know it sounds a little silly when I say it. We, we know that Jesus is center stage. But it stings a little too, doesn't it? It should. We're like Jacob. We're usurpers. We want center stage. We want to be the lead actor. And so we've got to come to grips with the fact that we're not the main character. Jesus is. Paul says that in him all things hold together. So if you put yourself in the place of Joseph, it's an indication you don't really understand the text because what you wind up with is just kind of moralisms for life. Which, again, you know, it's, which is not bad. But it's not where we start. Where we start is with the brothers. <laughs> That's because we're far, far closer to the brothers than we are Joseph. If we're anyone in this play... We're the brothers. We're the ones in need. Listen, let me, let me describe Joseph. You tell, you tell me. Here are the themes of Joseph's life. You listen to these and you tell me. There were dreams and visions that pointed to his kingship. He was good and upright and righteous from his youth. God's hand was upon him and blessed him. He was sinless. God loved him. His own hated him. They were jealous, so they conspired to kill him. They stripped him of his garment. They sold him for pieces of silver to the Gentiles. He was unjustly thrown in jail. It was actually because of his purity that he was put on trial to begin with. But through dreams of wine and bread in jail, he comes before the king of the land. There was no one in the land who had wisdom like him. He explained the ways of God hidden from men. Then he was called ruler and Lord. He lived among them. People bowed down to him in fulfillment of the prophecies. His suffering redeemed his people. He said himself his sufferings were to save their lives and give them great reward. He forgave their sins. It was as if he was raised to life from the pit to kingship when he was 30 years old. When his father hears the good news, he says, My son, who is dead is now alive. In the end, 
all the world came to him to purchase bread. Who am I talking about here? (laughs) Say it. It's obvious, isn't it? This is the image of Christ. I just want to point out here, this is the first book of the Bible. And if, if you're sitting here with us this morning and you've not thought that much about Christian faith, just, just so you'll know that this is not just a coincidence. This was written thousands of years before Christ. And of course there are many Christ images in the world. But the similar powerful images happened to his father Jacob, his grandfather Isaac, and his great-grandfather Abraham. They're all there. Now, okay, okay, you you thought through this image of Jacob. Think through with me this image of the brothers. Their self-perception is that they are honest men. Even Even though they seem to have forgotten their cruel lies to their father. Their cruel lies to their father about Joseph's death. Among themselves... They're aware that the blood of Joseph is on their hands. But against all reason, they continue to insist that they are honest. Joseph calls them spies. They deny it, not remembering how they had spied out a village and murdered the men of that village. They couldn't see who he was. He came to them and they did not recognize him. So understand this. This blows my mind. When they begged for bread... When they come to him and beg for their salvation, they did not see that they were asking for mercy from the one they had sought to murder. Joseph ate with them even though they were his betrayers. And he tested them to see if they would come to a place of repentance. It's not until Judah stands up and demonstrates true repentance by literally giving his life to the, to the king that Joseph reveals himself as Savior and Lord. So who are, who are we? We're not, we're not Joseph, are we? <laughs> we're the brothers. We're the brothers. Well, what do we do with this? What, what do we do with this? Story. What does this have to do with us today, right? How do we apply it in in our own lives? I'd like to walk you through three areas where where this has implications in our life, where this story has a lot to do with us. Now, most obviously, just as the brothers are not center stage, we need to repent of thinking ourselves as center stage. God is Lord and Judge. We need to see him as the main actor in this play. We need to see him center stage in the world and in our world. Just as Joseph ordered events in the lives of the brothers to bring them to repentance, God orders our life too. Now, I'm always, I'm always fascinated by that. You know, the, the contrast here is the brothers are basically going through this story kind of like that. I mean, they, they really, did, they're, you know, they're, what's going on? I don't understand. How did this happen? Why is this cup here? You know, where, why are we serving us this meal, right? So they're constantly puzzled about what's going on. Of course, what's happening is, behind the scenes, Joseph is ordering things for their lives to bring them to this place. It's an astounding and amazing uh, look 
at the hint of the sovereign hand of God in your life. <laughs> if, you, if you think that you're sitting here by accident, if you, if you think that somehow you've come to this place just because it was your will and you showed up, and you do not understand how God orders things. And I'm very, very confident that God has brought you here for a reason. There is something for God for you here. <laughs> because we see it. We see it so clearly in the ordering of the brothers' lives. Just as Joseph knew the brothers' hearts better than they knew themselves, we need to trust that God knows us. And when he tells us we're rebellious sinners, we should listen. The tendency, you see, is, is to think, I'm okay. I have no problems. I'm all right. It's everybody else. They've got problems. There's no, no, no problem convincing uh, us that other people have problems, right? <laughs> I was talking with a friend this week over coffee. He was saying, you know, most of life's problems are dealt with when we recognize our sinfulness, when we see our sin for what it is. And it's all, all its wretchedness. And I think he's right. The fact is, we're not honest men and women. Left to ourselves, we, we think we're okay. It's not until God does a work in your heart that brings you to a place where you're even aware of your sin. Where you're even able to repent. Because we, we would, left to ourselves, and given the same circumstances, would act just like the brothers. We would kill a brother to kind of satisfy our own nature. That's us. Recognize that in our hearts, in our natural state, we are enemies of God. Paul says in Colossians 1.21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So we need to... We can take hold of this, who we are and who God is. Secondly, there's some things from this story to take home about us in this story, about Jesus and the cross. I mentioned I was so taken with this story that those who sought to murder Joseph beg for their lives. And yet for all of us, for everyone in this room, there comes this point where we are challenged to approach the throne of God. To humbly bow down, just as, as the brothers did before Joseph. To, to, as it were, beg this Holy One, the Lord of the universe, to spare us. To be merciful to us. That's, that's an astounding thought, don't you think? That those who had murdered him seek his forgiveness. You, you remember when the Passion of the Christ came out? The movie, Mel Gibson's film, uh, and you know, every, you know, there's big hullabaloo and all the all the newspapers about who killed Jesus. Was it the Jews? Was it the Gentiles? And you know, the, everyone was mad about how you know people were being depicted. And of course, the, you, you know who killed Jesus? We did. It was us. We didn't even point our fingers. We killed Jesus. You did. I did. Our sins were what nailed Jesus to the cross. 
It was meant for evil. But God used it for good. How, how else can you explain how this cruel instrument of torture has become the primary symbol of the Christian faith? So we remember, we remember, when we approached this king and judge for mercy, it was our sin which nailed him to the cross. But just as Joseph knew that his sufferings were to redeem his people, so we should know that the cross is the way of redemption, the way to be reconciled to God. God uses what was intended for evil, for good, a foreshadowing of the cross. Now Joseph makes sense of his suffering and that it saved the lives of those he loved. His tears showed that he loved him. And that's the astounding good news. Paul, Paul says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us. Not because we're good or beautiful or strong. Because he loves us and has made a way for us to return to a love relationship with the living God. Now, there's one thing very different about Joseph and Jesus. Joseph suffered, as as did Christ, but he did not have the sins of the world placed on him. Jesus is the only one who has ever done that. He was the perfect sacrifice for you and me. Our sins were placed on him on the cross so that we could approach God as Judah approached Joseph. A desire for real forgiveness. But not from a man, from God. Which leads us to our third and final point. There are things that we learn in this story about our own response. Just as the brothers came to their Lord, who was also their brother, their family, so we must come to Christ if we want life. Just as the brothers were enemies, as it were, but restored, we too can have peace with God if we come to true repentance. It's not about turning over a new leaf or being morally better. It's about giving our lives to the king and complete trust and faith. Just as Judah hands over his life with abandon to Joseph, we hand over our lives to Jesus. There's no deals in this. We don't get to cut a deal. God, I'm I'm, okay. I'll give you my life, but I'm I'm keeping this. I had this... uh, student friend named Rose uh, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, I talked to her about what it meant to give her life to God. And she struggled with this. She was a great sinner. <laughs> and, um, but finally one day she told God, okay, you can have the sex and the booze and the drugs, but I keep everything else. <laughs> like, what else is there? <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I said, no, Rose, no, it's your whole life. You don't, get to, you don't cut a deal here. <laughs> Just as Judah hands over his life, we hand it over to Jesus. A call to give your life to this king, just as Judah stood before Joseph and gave his life to him, is our call now. You might have heard it all your life. You might have heard give your life to Jesus all your life. You might be hearing it for the first time. It's just as true. No matter where we are in our, in our life, <laughs> there is always this challenge to hand over our life. But let me make it clear. There must be a point in your life 
There must be that moment in your life where you take your life and give it to God. It looks like what Judah did. It's not, it's not this long journey that you know, we, we, we're fuzzy about. You know how the, the Bible says that, that God wrote your name in the book of life when you were born again. How long does it take him to write that name? You know, John, you know, how many years does he write that name? I know, I think he writes that name in a moment. There is this transaction. And all it is is to recognize our sin. Confess it to God. Turn from it. And trust in this Christ with your whole life. Now you may not remember when that happened. The important thing is that you're walking with Him now. That you know without a shadow of a doubt that He is your Redeemer. So that's okay. I'm not not saying that. But it's important. If you've never come to that moment, I want to say, please, I beg you, hand your life over to God. Recognize that He loves you a sinner, and he calls you to himself. If this were a play, I'd call it Jesus and the amazing technicolor redemption of God. How a loving God would suffer our sins upon himself to redeem us back to fellowship with him if we will but stand before him with honesty and turn from our past sin to give him our lives. Let's pray to that end. Lord God, as we've come through the book of Genesis over these three sessions in the Old Testament, we're amazed at what we see in in chapter 22 with Abraham and how we see ourselves in Isaac, how we desperately need that provision of you for a substitute sacrifice. Lord, we see ourselves in Jacob wrestling with you We see that you come to us and confront us about our own personal sin and affront to you and how we are to go your way, not ours. Lord, we see this amazing image of Christ in Joseph in Genesis 42 and other chapters here in Genesis. Lord, we thank you for this astounding image written thousands of years before the time of Christ. And we recognize how your plan enacted in an eternity past is now a part of what's happening right here at Redeemer. And we are awed by that. So once again, we give our lives to you, totally, completely, without reserve, knowing that you are a good king who loves us and calls us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.